This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project. Hello, my name is Leanne Digny and I'm a researcher at the Institute of International and European Affairs, the IIEA here in Dublin. I'm delighted to be hosting an interview today as part of the IIEA's Global Europe project supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs. This project aims to address, analyse and communicate to the wider public the EU's role in the world and Ireland's role in the multilateral order. I am very pleased to be joined today by the UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms While Countering Terrorism, Fanula Nielon, who has kindly agreed to share her insights into the role and her reflections on the major challenges in this sphere today. So Fanula, welcome and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks. Glad to be here. So just maybe by way of an introduction, could you briefly just explain to us um, your role and responsibilities as the UN Special Rapporteur on Counterterrorism and Human Rights? And could you maybe just tell us a little bit about what your mandate covers? Yeah, for sure. So the mandate I hold is a Human Rights Council mandate created by a resolution of the Human Rights Council in 2005. Arguably, the mandate's creation was a response really to the events of 9-11 and the then called War on Terror, where a series of sustained human rights violations, egregious human rights violations, were associated with the response to the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and a sense that there was an imbalance in the way in which states were going around their counterterrorism work globally. So it's out of that kind of history that the mandate emerges. And I have really sort of two, two, two parts to the mandate's work. The work in Geneva is pretty much the same as every other mandate holder. I issue communications to governments. Those could be on individual cases, or they could be on things like pieces of legislation, policy, practice of the government, and I offer technical assistance to them. So it could be intervention on a particular case, or it could be um, intervention around a particular piece of piece of government action that has an impact on human rights in the counterterrorism sphere. So an example of that would be, for example, we've had a series of communications around drone strikes by the United States, where we've been aware of particular individuals who believe they may be targeted for use by drones. We had a communication, my mandate had a communication to Ireland concerning its return of a woman who had joined the Islamic State and was found in Al Hol camps some years ago. So um, that is an example of a communication to, to a government. Then I do country visits and we've done many of those over many years. And then I issue, like every other special rapporteur, reports to the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly. The one maybe distinguishing feature of this mandate from other UN special procedure mandate holders is that this mandate is also what's called an entity in the New York security architecture. So I sit on something called the Global Counterterrorism Coordination Committee in New York, uh, Compact, and, and in that sort of function, there are eight committees that my mandate is a member of um, in the New York security space. Okay, so there's a lot going on there. Um, so you, you've already picked up and mentioned, um, I suppose, the the response by states after 9-11 and, and this idea of the war on terror. And it's really this, you know, this recent increase in terrorist threats that have really led to these more robust counterterrorism measures. Could you maybe just give us a, a brief overview of the main humanitarian and rights-related consequences of these measures that are of concern to your office? 
I mean, so one, of course, is the history of rendition and torture, which my mandate has long been engaged in. And that, I think, sustains to this day in state practice, um, whether it's the continued existence of the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, to the mass arbitrary detention, we believe, of individuals in Xinjiang, China, or mass arbitrary detention in Northeast Syria for women and children who are deemed to have been associated with ISIL. Um, so that's an example of a kind of a practice that emerged after 9-11 that in some ways is consolidated in global practice. Um, in the humanitarian sphere, I would say one of the things that I have tracked and my predecessors have tracked is the way in which counterterrorism measures increasingly affect humanitarian action. So if you have a site a, a geography where states or a state defines as a counterterrorism context, then many states will say any aid or assistance into that site constitutes material support to terrorism. So we have seen humanitarian organizations, including the most established organizations, the ICRC, the Norwegian Refugee Council, so many others, struggling against this tide of government view that if they are working in an area where acts of terrorism occur um, and they are providing you know, impartial humanitarian action, food, medicine, and so on, those are, uh, they're at risk of uh, being accused of being materially supportive of terrorism. Um, we've seen recently that the UN actually passed a resolution which established a humanitarian carve-out on all UN sanctioned regimes. Have you, um, or, or your office, have you seen any, I suppose, impact or outcome from that on the ground yet? So I would say that my mandate has been deeply engaged on the issue of humanitarian carves out, carve outs, arguing for them, my predecessors and I arguing for them for many years. And um, there's been historic resistance to that. But last year, led by the United States and by Ireland in its very last and perhaps most important act on the Security Council, uh, co-sponsored a resolution that established humanitarian carve outs across all of these sanctions regimes, including counterterrorism sanctions regimes. And that is enormously important because it means that we no longer penalize humanitarian action. We no longer uh, simply say if you're engaging in impartial humanitarian work, you are you can be called or defined as a terrorist. And I think that's really important. On the ground, of course, these things are really slow to be implemented, and that's really what my mandate is watching closely now. We've seen the United States issue what are called general licenses that will establish the legal framework within which these sanctions regimes can operate on the ground. Other countries really need to do the same. And I think the thing to watch in that space is this is a resolution that has to be renewed. And so that if it's not renewed, that could, in fact, create this as a short term, not a long term precedent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've also touched on, I suppose, that part of your mandate, as part of your mandate, you are expected to conduct those fact finding country visits. Do you find that you face challenges in securing these visits? Um, I think it's hard for any special rapporteur, but I would say it's particularly hard for a security mandate. When I conduct a country visit, I um, would generally require access to the intelligence services, the military, the police, internal security. I conduct prison inspections as part of my visit, which means I'm always visiting high security prisons, interviewing people who've either been charged or convicted of terrorism or national security offenses, 
What that means in practice is that states have a high degree of sensitivity to those visits because the, even, I suppose, in a very obvious way, the exposure of my team and I to a range of what are often um, national security classified informations or places. Um, so it's been challenging, but I would say I've had, all, you know, barring COVID, which meant we weren't on the road, my mandate has conducted every a visit and sometimes two every year I've been mandate holder. And I think that's been around trust building between myself and governments and indicating, I mean, obviously the 360 you do in a country visit is, is enormously, makes a state very vulnerable. And I think we should accept that it's a big ask and accept for states to let special rapporteurs in but also that you're there to be of assistance, that your goal is to provide really good advice that makes and helps them do things better. So difficult, but not impossible, I think is the, is the call on that. That's yeah, no, that's very impressive. Um, Fanula, you're, you're now coming to the end of your second term as the, as special rapporteur in this area. What were your priorities for the last three years and have those priorities been achieved? Uh, I mean, when I came in as mandate holder, I established four priorities and then I added another priority to that. Um, the first was a focus on civil society, that I would document and address the ways in which counterterrorism and security measures were being used to stifle or limit the work of civil society globally. The second was to look at the global counterterrorism architecture of security. That's been growing, believe it or not, since 9-11, we've had more counterterrorism architecture, including inside the UN, that is non-human rights compliant than we've ever had. And the third commitment was to look at exceptionalities, to look at national legislation, to understand what's happening at the national level, whether it's the Offences Against the State Act in Ireland, that I've had some things to say about the Prevention of Terrorism Act in the UK, um, or legislation in other countries. I took a really committed sort of focus on that. And finally, I'm, I'm a feminist international lawyer, and I came to this mandate with a view that we would engage gender in every way at every point in the mandate's work. And in the, my second term, I added one more priority, which was addressing the interface of new technologies with counterterrorism. So spyware, biometrics, AI, and across all of those things, I, yeah, I suppose I do feel proud that I think my team and I have done some extraordinary work. Last week at the ECOSOC chamber in New York, I launched the global study on the impact of counterterrorism on civic space and civil society. That's a huge piece of work. It's been a year and a half in the making, supported by Germany and Spain, and it meticulously documents the ways in which counterterrorism is being used against civil society actors, including women, H, women human rights defenders, LGBTQ and gender diverse persons. So I think it's a real, I hope it's a thing that lasts and influences policy in this area. And um, in terms of new technology, I think we've put human rights on the agenda of spyware, biometrics, AI. I've issued multiple reports and we're seeing the effects of some of that work already, both within the EU um, uh, in the, the we have new AI legislation pending. We're seeing an attention to issues of human rights and counterterrorism around biometrics and API and PNR. And I do think that on the issues around um, 
gender, um, I hope that one of the things my mandate has done is changed the vocabulary and the conversation about gender in CT, because in everything I do, whether it's new technology and counterterrorism or a country visit, um, gender issues are at the forefront. So just picking up on, on what you've said there about gender and I suppose your commitment to mainstreaming gender through your mandate, how do you think a, a comprehensive UN gender gender sensitive approach to counterterrorism, one that includes addressing gender stereotypes and interpretations of masculinity, how could that contribute to preventing, I suppose, the mobilization and recruitment of men? Yeah, I mean, I think the mandate's work on gender inclusion starts from maybe even beyond gender sensitivity. It starts with gender equality. And I think I've often argued that our language around kind of a little bit of women and staring or occasional references to, to gender don't do this work. And in fact, take our attention away from the need to have a focus on equality is the central plank of addressing the rights of women and men equally in counterterrorism. And that starts with representation, mostly all of the spaces. I'm the first woman, woman SR on CT. Um, women don't appear in these spaces. Women don't work in these spaces. Most of the senior, uh, whether it's intelligence services or military personnel that I deal with in my day-to-day -day work, they're men, rarely women. And so we have to start with that point that unless we kind of change the representational space, unless we recognize that this is an elite space with little access, it's, it's, it's really... Um, I think, behind the curve in terms of representativeness, not just in terms of gender representativeness, but also in terms of racial and other diversities. Um, <clears throat> we have a long way to go in making better security policy. Um, in terms of how do we accept, recognize, see the ways in which gender plays a role in both the perpetuation of bad counterterrorism and in recruitment into terrorism for both women and men, um, I would say that one of the key things is we have to look at conditions conducive to violence, actually. Why do people, whether they are men or women, engage and choose to make uh, choices of violence or, um, uh, or extremity? And that, I think, is pretty old-fashioned stuff. It goes back to equality. It goes back to structural issues. It goes to poverty. It goes to the implementation of the SGD, SDGs. And so um, I don't know that we've changed that conversation, but I think we've exposed um, the real um, fault lines of inequality and I would say superficiality in much of the UN discourse around inclusion, as well as the ways in which women are deeply commodified in this space. And so much of the work we see on women in this space is really about commodifying women to stop men being violent. And I think we should be a long way past that. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think it's interesting that there's no universally accepted legal definition of terrorism. Do you think that it's necessary for the UN, for example, to establish such a definition in order for us to have a more kind of cohesive approach to counterterrorism measures? Well, what I would say is counterterrorism is a space of systematic abuse of human rights. Um, what I see in every country, in every space, is legislation which is vague, uh, lacks precision, 
actually criminalizes human rights acts, which are protected by law, by the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, by the International, by the Universal Declaration. So we, we see enormous, um, uh, I think, harm being perpetuated in the name of counterterrorism. And I think the reason why we've had a treaty sitting in the Sixth Committee for almost 30 years is because it entirely suits states not to have a definition. You get to call anybody you like a terrorist these days, whether it's a woman human rights activist in Saudi Arabia arguing that she has a right to drive a car, she gets charged with terrorism, she gets criminalized in a special court for terrorists, whether it's indigenous land defenders and water defenders in places uh, in like Peru, where they're charged with terrorism offenses, whether it's protesters at um, the COP or other places, what, we, what do we see? We see the use of counterterrorism measures, whether it's, so this is, this is a structural problem of misuse. And the problem is that states like it this way, because there's, a definition is not impossible. In fact, the mandate has offered a definition. We use it with states. There's a UN Security Council resolution 1566 that offers a definition. The point is states don't use it because they like the permissiveness of this current status quo. I see. Um, I suppose just moving to a slightly different question. I know that you've you've previously written a book about the use of force um, by state agents during the conflict in Northern Ireland. You're also the co-founder of the University of Ulster's uh, Transitional Justice Institute in Belfast. Um, I was just wondering how have these experiences maybe informed your current work? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's a single thread. It started in Belfast when I was a law student um, in Queens during what was then the height of the conflict. And um, my work as a law, I went to Queens because I wanted to be in the place where human rights work was being done in the context of the conflict. Um, I was one of the people who helped um, establish and consolidate a small NGO in Belfast. It's my longest running job at the Committee of the Administration of Justice, where I've sat on the board now for almost 30 years. And that experience of conflict for my family, for the community I uh, was a part of, am a part of, um, has really shaped the way I understand the conditions that produce violence, how fundamental inequality is a driver of exclusion, stigma and violence how women sit on the sidelines of these conversations and are rarely brought in, how bad counterterrorism produces cycles of violence that take decades to undo, and how a failure to address misuse of counterterrorism uh, in fact is a fundamental kind of push and pull factor in its own right to more violence. So, um, Belfast, Northern Ireland has deeply shaped everything I do. And um, it's the thing I continue to write the most about in my academic work. It's the place I call home. So um, yeah, it has been, I would say there's sort of just a single thread that brings my current work. And when people ask me, is your day job now different? And I go, no, I think I've been doing more or less the same thing since 1987. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic just to hear that, you know, you've kind of brought that that with you, I suppose. Um, so maybe maybe the toughest question yet. <laughs> I'm just wondering, what have you found to be the most difficult and the most rewarding aspects of this role? I mean, the most difficult aspect is the same. I think every special rapporteur would give you the same answer. We have no resources. I work on a zero budget. 
My time is given for free. I'm lucky that I have two universities, the Queen's University in Belfast and the University of Minnesota, and two deans who've supported my commitment to this work and made the resources of the university and my time, freed up some of my time to do it. But the hardest thing is that to hire a team of extraordinary women lawyers, I have an all-female team of counterterrorism and human rights experts, I've had to raise that money myself. So that makes the daily work of being an SR all the more difficult because of the sheer insecurity. If I need to travel to New York to do a meeting, I was at an ARIA formula meeting just this Monday, um, I have to find the airfare for that. It's not given, doesn't come with the job. And again, that's a choice by states. We are underfunded in a deliberate way because it impedes our effectiveness. And so states who want to spend money on things do. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Kingdom of Qatar fund global counterterrorism at the highest and most excellent of rates. States who say they want human rights don't pay for it. And that tells us something profound. And um, the most rewarding part is, well, I have an extraordinary team of women lawyers who are my legal advisors. And um, I think the esprit de corps of working with a dedicated group of extraordinary professionals who have helped me do my work has been really profound in making and enabling me to do this work. And I think as a corollary to that, I've crisscrossed the globe and have met with civil society, human rights defenders, and women human rights activists every single place I go. And their courage in the most difficult of situations, the imprisonment they face for doing human rights work, their designation as terrorists in simply asking for the right to speak freely, participate in public affairs, practice their religion, defend women's rights. Um, these encounters, um, I think, are the things that have transformed me personally and are the things I take away as I end my tenure. Well, on that note, I'd just like to say thank you so much for joining us today, Fanula. And on behalf of the IIA, I would just like to commend you on all of the incredible work that you and your office have done and, you know, I've done over the last six years and I'm sure will continue to do. Um, so. If you'd like to learn more about the Global Europe Project or listen back to other podcasts in the Global Europe podcast series, you can check out our website or social media. This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe Project.